The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Even though we uh, finished the exposition of the text uh, week before last, I thought it would be good if we spent a little more time in uh, pondering and thinking about the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to read the words of institution, starting in verse 23, then through verse 34. So this is the word of the Lord. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. I made uh, the observation a couple weeks ago that if it weren't for the Corinthians' uh, awful abuse of the Lord's table, we would not have the most thorough passage in the New Testament on the Lord's table. And so God uses, of course, error and and sin to bring about good, and the church has benefited for 2,000 years because of the Corinthians' terrible abuses at the table. And so uh, a number of weeks ago, we started, we looked at the Corinthian abuse at the supper, which Paul outlines for us in 17 to 22, and then he gives the words of institution. Now, the words of institution, they are called that because these are the words that our Lord Jesus spoke during that Passover, which we now call the Last Supper. And as he spoke those words, he spoke words that that were absolutely unique. No one else in all of Jerusalem took the bread and said, this is my body. Nobody else in all of Jerusalem held up the cup of blessing and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Only Jesus did that. And as Jesus spoke those words, He instituted the Lord's Supper and, in a sense, inaugurated the new covenant. And so these words are words that remind us of of the, uh, the seriousness of the supper, the reverence with which we should approach the supper. There's no doubt that Paul's um, reminding the Corinthians of these words of institution so that they would see the absolute folly 
of what they were doing. Then in verses 27 to 34, Paul gives a series of instructions and warnings for participating in the supper. So verse 27 is a warning of unworthy participation. And uh, Paul, Paul says words that are uh, incredibly sobering. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. There really is no way to say it more seriously than that. To partake unworthily is is sinning against the Lord himself as he is symbolized and represented in the bread and the cup. It is profaning the table by mistreating Christ's people. And to mistreat Christ's people is to mistreat Christ himself. Paul, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul then gives an exhortation. A man must examine himself, and thus in this way of examining himself, he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. Then Paul gives another warning in 29 to 30. For the one eating and drinking judgment to himself, so if he's not discerning the body rightly. And we talked about that. Uh, what does it mean to discern the body? And I suggested that Paul is, is probably um, making reference to both the significance of the body of Christ represented in the bread, but then also the body of Christ as present as the people of God at the table. And so Paul says, so because because you are um, not partaking in a worthy manner, you are eating and drinking judgment to yourself. You're not discerning the body rightly. Then he says, for this reason, many are weak, sick, and quite enough have fallen asleep. That is, some have died. So the eating and drinking judgment to oneself by not discerning the body brought about the discipline and judgment of God. Then verses 31 and 32, Paul gives another exhortation. You see this pattern, warning, exhortation, warning, exhortation. So if we evaluated ourselves, if we judged ourselves, we examined ourselves, we would not be judged. So the point is is clear, and that is that Self-examination or self-evaluation is the means whereby we deal with our own sins. That's one of the blessings, as we'll see a little later, of the Lord's table is that it forces us to deal with our sins. And so self-examination is the means by which I deal with my sins. Divine discipline happens when I refuse to deal with my sins and then God has to deal with my sins. And let me just say that um, it it is far better to examine yourself and then to deal with the sins of your own heart 
than to act as if they're no big deal and, and in a sense, force God's hand to have to deal with us. And so, on those occasions when we fail to deal with our sins, God has to do it, and the divine discipline is, is, is a measure that God takes with his children to keep us repentant and believing. And so, uh, you, you, can, you can see that there's, a, in a sense, a, uh, a step here. So, self-examination, self-evaluation is designed to lead us to repentance. If I refuse to do that, if I refuse to do it honestly, if I refuse to do it uh, in, in a way that honors the Lord, uh, then God says, well, I can, I can bring you to repentance. And he uses divine discipline. Hebrews 12, 5 through 11. The Father disciplines those whom he loves. But if we don't listen to the discipline of the Lord then we're in serious trouble. I mean, God can always bring about more severe discipline. But the fact that we may not be listening or responding to the rebukes and the corrections of our Father may actually show that maybe He's not our Father. thinking of this earlier today based on a conversation I had with somebody a while back and they were in sin, they knew they were in sin, but they didn't feel compelled to leave off their sin because, well, I'm not feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You realize that that's not God's stamp of approval. That could be God's judgment. To not sense the conviction of the Holy Spirit and to think that somehow, well, if God wanted, the the words were something like, if God wanted me to stop, He would bring conviction. I don't feel any conviction. How can it be wrong when it feels so right? Right? It's a dangerous place. That's the place of the apostate. And so the divine discipline that Paul talks about is, is really, it's an act of grace to bring us to repentance but it is, it is a measure that God uses when we refuse to use the measures that he's given us. He then turns around and gives some practical steps. And um, I, I mentioned this. It really is sort of a wonderful thing. Here's Paul as he gets down to the end of this, this wonderful treatment. And he says, when you come together as a church to eat the Lord's Supper, wait for each other. Now, it, it could be that he says, um, that he could say, uh, welcome each other, because the word can also mean that, and that would make really good sense, frankly. Welcome each other. Um, but here's, the, here's the, the, the observation, is that Paul just gives them something simple to do. Okay? Just wait for each other. Okay? Show some hospitality. 
it is it is interesting to me that that Paul is giving really simple, clear, doable instruction. He doesn't say, wait until the Spirit moves you. He just says, wait. Right? Sometimes moving in the right direction is just simply doing a simple thing that's in the right direction. Okay? Not waiting for, for the heavens to open and for me to hear a voice on what I'm supposed to do. Oh my goodness, we've been blowing at the Lord's Supper. What shall we do, Lord? And he says, just wait for each other. It's that simple. Then he turns around and he says, um, so if anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that you don't gather as a church for judgment. Remember how we opened this section in verse 17? When you come together, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. Okay. So... <laughs> Wait for each other. If you're really hungry, if, if, you, if you think you're going to be tempted to go to church and pig out in such a way that you are showing contempt on those who have nothing, eat some chips and hummus before you come to church. Okay. All right. Again, practical, right? Eat at home. Very practical. Now, that's... That's this section, and it's really magnificent. And so I'd like for us to take a few minutes and think about some implications and applications of the Lord's Supper, all right? So you guys know that the Lord's Supper, uh, the Lord's Supper was, in a sense, the big issue in the Reformation. Okay? So we, we sometimes think that um, things like justification by faith, that was the big issue. Well, that was the big issue between the Protestants and the Catholics. The big issue among Protestants was the Lord's Supper. Okay? And there was, there was um, vehement disagreement over the nature of the Supper. Now, the, um, the primary focus of the early Protestants when it came to the Lord's Supper was, um, was, was basically um, denouncing the Mass. That was, that was sort of the, the common thread. Everybody denounced the Mass. And so um, really there was no more uh, robust theology and practice or piety and practice of the Lord's Supper than in Scotland. All right, so we're 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 digressing a little in history, but I, I want to set the, the the table for you. So, who was the uh, Reformation or reformer in the Church of Scotland? John Knox. John Knox. Okay. Now, John Knox. John Knox was scary, and uh, I did a Reformation lecture on John Knox. John Knox is uh, is is awesome, but he deals with the Lord's Supper extensively, but it's almost solely focused on ruthless denunciations of the idolatry of the Mass. Okay? That, is, um, that is his primary focus, the idolatry of the Mass. And so when, uh, when Knox writes to, uh, to instruct churches 
on how do you do church. He goes over more things in terms of what you're not supposed to do with the Lord's Supper. Okay, Don't elevate the host. Don't kneel to receive it and so forth, right? And it is this incredible denunciation of the Mass as idolatry. And he has a great treatise on it if you ever want to read it. And it is, it is, it is great. Okay? So, by the way, if you were a former Catholic, you love stuff like that, right? If you were never a Catholic and never at a Mass and never witnessed um, uh, the, uh, the so-called miracle of transubstantiation, it doesn't mean anything to you. But if you're a former Catholic and you read Knox, you're like, go John, right? Okay, so um, there's another reformer in Scotland named Robert Bruce. And Robert Bruce lives from 1554 to 1631. And Robert Bruce is probably one of the most significant figures in the Scottish church that gives the church its, really, its theological stability. One of these days, we'll talk about the Reformation in Scotland because it was different than the Reformation in any other place in all of Europe. But Robert Bruce was was wonderfully powerful preacher, and he he preached five sermons on the Lord's Supper. And those five sermons would help shape the practice and theology of the supper for the Scottish Church. Those five sermons would shape the the communion service in the Scottish church. Let me just read to you, just you'll see why this is such a he was such a wonderful um, reformer. He says, The word leads us to Christ by the ear. The sacraments lead us to Christ by the eye. Two senses of all the rest, which God has chosen as most meet for this purpose, to instruct us and to bring us to Christ. The word comes, the word's designed to bring us to Christ, the word comes to the ear. The supper, the bread and the cup, to the eye. You see it, right? You can see it. Bruce would, would go on and he would talk about the supper is, is used by the Holy Spirit to soften hard hearts and to awaken the heart and to stir the heart. And, and, and Bruce would say things like this, that, that in the supper we get Christ. We get the whole Christ, not by the mouth, but by faith. So, why do I um, diverge uh, into a little history? It's sort of a reminder to us that we certainly don't have the same high view of the supper that our forefathers had. Regardless of the different theological perspectives, regardless of the different um, uh, views of the presence of Christ at the supper. The fact is, is that our forefathers 
actually looked at the supper in a way that it was it was beautiful, it was glorious, it was designed by God as a tender mercy to Christ's people. Okay. So, let's make a few observations. First, the obligations of the table. Okay. So, I'm going to say that when, when the table is put out over here, and there are trays with bread and trays with grape juice in them, all right? That the very presence of that table, the very presence of those elements, actually is an immediate declaration of certain obligations that the people of God have. And the first obligation is, is obvious, and that is the obligation to observe Jesus says clearly as he institutes the Lord's Supper in the Gospel of Luke and then as Paul uh, recites it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. The first obligation in the Supper is the obligation to observe. Jesus gives this as a command to his people. This is, this is a command that, that, that the church recognizes the uniqueness of it in such a way that that the church has said, that the the Protestant church has said, there are two ordinances or two sacraments. There is the Lord's Supper and baptism. And ordinance means command. Jesus gave way more commands than just two, but these two commands actually stand as instituted commands for his church to observe until the end of the age. When does the church stop observing communion? Until he comes. And then we'll observe communion in, in a way that goes beyond anything you could imagine. Okay. So there's the obligation to observe, but there's, there's also then the obligation to examine ourselves. Okay. Now, I put in the back for you um, something that s- some of you will um, enjoy and others of you will, um, will not. J.W. Alexander on uh, thoughts on self-examination, and um, and and I will I will gladly admit that the Puritans and then those in the Puritan tradition, like uh, the Alexanders, um, that they they probably overdid sometimes on um, conviction and and um, things like that. But you get a you get a flavor for questions that you should ask yourself in self-examination. We don't we don't examine ourselves very well, right? We, we don't even, we don't even, um, when was the last time you actually ever heard a sermon of the, these are the steps of self-examination, this is what self-examination looks like, right? Nobody talks about that, right? And yet, self-examination is, is an obligation in the supper. How are you to eat? You are to eat by evaluating or judging yourself, Right? That's the way that we are supposed to eat. And so there is the obligation to examine ourselves, and I submit the, um, the J.W. Alexander piece to you. Um, he wrote that to, these are all letters that J.W. Alexander wrote to, uh, to a young believer. And, uh, and so imagine being a young believer, and, and uh, you ask Dr. Alexander, how should I partake of the Lord's Supper? And he writes that back to you, right? 
The next is the obligation to prepare. Again, we don't do that much either, but yet there is, there is a sense in which as we come to the table, there should be a spiritual preparation. There should be a sense of, of praying, uh, even meditation and reflection. And I, I hope that this is a discipline that you do from Lord's Day to Lord's Day, right? Um, some of you have special time of prayer with your family on Saturday nights where you pray for the service, pray for the pastor, pray for the sermon and so forth. Well, when you know that it's going to be the Lord's Supper, you know, pray that, that God would help you to have eyes to see and, and hearts to feel and, and that God would show you your sins. And in other words, spend time in preparation before we come to the table. Now, we don't, we don't have um, the Scottish tradition nor the Dutch tradition, but both of those traditions have a, a, a strong emphasis on preparation. In fact, in the Scottish tradition, you know how many times they would observe the Lord's table? Their frequency? Once a year. Once a year. Now, what they would do is they would have the churches in a presbytery, okay? So think of a region of churches. Those churches would all gather together a week before the supper. And there would be preparation sermons twice a day, every day leading up to the supper. Okay. I should have brought it with me, but um, one of the early Scots, Patrick Hamilton, um, is invited to preach at a um, preparation uh, service. And there they are in the Scottish Highlands, and he is preaching, and it starts to rain. Of course, in the Scottish Highlands, it rains sideways, pretty much, right? And so, but there was such unction in his preaching that everybody stayed and they were drenched. And as he continued to preach, the Spirit of God came with such reviving and awakening power that people would talk about that preparation service for years and years to come. People were converted, there was revival, and in fact, oftentimes in these week-long preparation services, there was frequently movements of God's Spirit in revival and awakening in the churches. The Dutch tradition, they do something very similar, even um, Dr. Beeky's tradition, they do communion quarterly. But the reason they do it quarterly is because they have a number of services leading up to the communion service. Okay? Now, to be sure, to be sure, there can be a sense where there is such an emphasis on preparation that it leads to the idea that, that you have to make yourself worthy in order to partake. So you may find people in these traditions that haven't actually taken the Lord's Supper in years because they've never felt fully prepared. That would be an extreme. That would be, but, but the choice shouldn't be between 
preparing so much so that you're completely unprepared, never take the supper, and just never being prepared at all. And so preparation, the Lord's Supper, by the way, is always subordinate to the Word, and it's always informed by the Word. So that, that's part of, that, that's, why, that's why when the Lord's Supper is observed, there should always be a sermon. Always. The, the idea of just having a communion service without preaching is actually separating what God has joined together. God has joined together word and ordinance or word and sacrament, and, and we dare not separate it in the sense of observing the sacrament, which only, which only gets its, its significance as it is expounded and explained to us by the word. Right? So word and, and, and ordinance always go together. The ordinance is always subordinate to the word, all right? It never replaces the word. This is one of the problems, uh, actually, in, um, in, in the early church ra- around 4th and 5th century is that the Lord's Supper began to be viewed more and more as a sacrifice and began to be more and more central, and it began to displace the ministry of the Word of God. Okay? So that, by the way, this is, this is true in Catholic tradition even to this day. If you go to Mass, what is Mass? Mass is not actually the service as a whole. Mass is actually the communion itself. Okay. And so, by the way, um, the, the sermon is never a big deal in a Catholic church. It's normally a homily about... Nothing. Next, there's the obligation of taking the supper seriously and reverently. This should be clear from what Paul has taught us. Approaching the supper, we need to show respect for the the character, the dignity. It's called for by the bread and the cup, all right? So those are the obligations of the table. What about the witness of the table? So the the, the table, and and I'm using the table as um, the, the figure of speech would be uh, a synecdoche. I'm using the part for the whole, the table for the whole service, the bread, the cup, the observance. Okay. The table is, is in a sense, um, it declares something to us. Okay, so there's a there's a witness that the table has. Okay? So again, when you come in and you see, we don't have a big ornate altar. Okay, that's that's. That's not uh, the way that we view it. We have a simple table. Okay? Notice that. A simple table and simple elements, but those simple elements on that simple table witness to a number of things. And the first thing they witness to is that they are a discriminating witness. The bread and the cup, by, by their very nature, in a sense, um, discriminate between the saved and the lost. How does it do that? How does the supper do that? Now, by the way, you can, you can uh, administer the supper in a way that that witness is removed. Okay. When we fence the table, 
we're making a, a discrimination. What do we say every single time? You will, in, in 24 plus years, you will not be able to think of one time where the Lord's Supper has been uh, administered where this distinction has not been made. If you are not a believer, do not partake of the bread and the cup. So the Lord's Supper is a witness, it's a discriminating witness, because it says basically there are some of you who have the right to the table and others who do not. And what, what, um, what delineates those who have the right to come to the table and those that don't is those who are in Christ and those who aren't. It really is, it is, a, it is a tremendous discriminating witness in the sense of it is making a declaration that there are some of you that you should not dare eat this bread and drink this cup because you will be eating and drinking judgment to yourself. And you may be able to fool the guy that's serving, but you can't fool Almighty God. One time, many, many years ago, we were at the old building on Industrial Way. We had a, a guy who uh, was under church discipline. And he hadn't been to church for a while. And in those days, we only did communion in the evenings. And he came in just as service was starting. And it was a communion service. And I said to one of the elders, you need to let him know that he's not permitted to the table. So that elder went back and told him, this is communion. You're not going to partake of communion. One of our other elders was serving that row and watched this guy take the bread. And you know what he did? He made his way through that aisle. And he said, give me the bread. Now, you could have just said, well, you know, that's between him and God. Actually, the elders have a responsibility to guard the table. Most of the time, that guarding is just going to be with our words. But there will be other times. So you might remember that, that in Geneva, there was a group of people called the Libertines. They hated Calvin. And these were people that were, they were awful. They were drunkards. They were sexually immoral. Often, many of them had high positions in uh, civil government. And Calvin actually had said that none of the Libertines would be permitted to the table of the Lord. Well, the communion service starts and the libertines all come in together after the service starts. Well, in Geneva, you you actually came forward to partake from the table. And so as the libertines made their way forward for the communion, Calvin went and stood out in front of the table and said, "Over my dead body, They didn't partake. 
Although I'm sure there were some that were willing to oblige him, they didn't partake. There is a dignity and a respect that that needs to be um, afforded the Lord's table. Years ago, we had a man that uh, was continuing to give his his toddler uh, communion. We talked to him once, had to talk to him again. And finally, after he agreed he wouldn't, he did it again. And we said, you have to stop doing this. And he said, well, I'm the head of my own family. I said, well, that's true. But as long as the elders are called to govern the church, when you're in here, you submit to the elders. And that was the last time he gave communion to his kid, unless he stuck it in his pocket and didn't let us see. Discriminating witness, it's a confrontational witness. Okay? So the table does, does not allow us to remain at peace with our sin. Okay? So I want, I want you to imagine, so there's a person sitting there and, and they know they're in sin and they know that there are grievous sins that they are guilty of and they have no intention whatsoever of repenting of those sins and that bread comes along and it is, it is only a hardened heart that will say, I'm clinging to my sins and I'm taking the supper. The the witness of the table is it confronts us. And it confronts us to not only confess our sins, but, but to repent of our sins. Robert Bruce, by the way, he says, if thou be not content to cast off whatever makes thee a stranger to Christ, thou art not worthy of him. And so the table confronts us and tells us not only this is the time to confess your sins, but the table actually is a reminder to us this is the time for you to commit to leaving off your sins, to repent of your sins. The table should make us feel incredibly uncomfortable if we're sitting there thinking, I am not going to stop doing what I'm doing. How in the world could you actually have that attitude in light of the very symbols of our Lord's death and his sacrifice for the very sins that we're clinging to idolatrously? The table is also a comforting witness. It magnifies God's forgiveness of us through the death of Christ. See, the, 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 the supper not only in a sense, confronts us and says, confess your sins, leave off your sins. But the table also testifies to us that the whole Christ is for you. Christ is for you. Christ lived for you. Christ died for you. Christ shed his blood for you. Christ was raised for you. Christ intercedes for you. Christ is coming again for you. Christ is for you. And there's a sense in which the supper actually testifies to us of the the amazing grace of God and the, the wonderful forgiveness of our sins. There's a hymn that we don't sing it very often, probably only a half a dozen times over all the years, but Jesus, thy blood and righteousness 
my beauty are, my glorious dress. As you take that bread and you take that cup, there is a sense in which the, the, the Spirit of God testifies to you through the symbols of our Lord's body and blood. You belong to him. You are his. And he is yours. Number three, the communion of the table. We saw this back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. Paul talks about the service as communion or fellowship koinonia in the body and blood of Christ. And so the communion of the table is in in one sense um, communion with Christ. So... The Holy Spirit is the one who ministers to us through the supper. Okay? It's, it is not, emphatically, it is not the elements of the bread and the cup itself. Okay? It is emphatically the role of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and what the Spirit does is the Spirit comes in, in, in a way where we are we're eating by faith, okay? But it's it's a spiritual eating. Remember how Paul talks about um, the uh, spiritual eating and drinking in First Corinthians ten one through four. Now, this is this is where this is where we have to be very careful, okay? So, what am I eating when I'm eating the bread? Well, I, I'm 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 eating bread. What am I drinking when I drink the cup? I'm, I'm drinking grape juice. Okay? That's what I'm eating and drinking. Okay? And yet, if I'm spiritually feasting on Christ, there's a sense in which what's being represented is me eating his flesh and drinking his blood. John chapter 6. Now, John chapter 6, bread of life discourse, I would argue is not Eucharistic. In other words, when Jesus says, eat my flesh, drink my blood, he's not talking about communion. He's talking about faith. But there's no doubt that the church, in retrospect, thinking about what Jesus said, thinks obviously about communion. Right? You, even though, in other words, even though Jesus isn't primarily talking about communion, as the church looks back and thinks of what Jesus said, eating his flesh, drinking his blood, yes, he's talking about faith, and it's the spirit that gives life. Okay? Flesh, flesh profits nothing, so it's not actually his flesh, it's not actually his blood, and, but there is this wonderful sense in which we spiritually feed on Christ. And so just as, just as food is is nourishment to the body. So that little piece of bread and that little bit of juice is nourishment to the soul. And what is happening is, as I eat that bread and drink the cup, I am having communion, koinonia, fellowship, with the body and blood of Christ. That is, I'm symbolically eating and drinking in a way that shows I am a sharer in his sacrifice. I I am a participant in the benefits of his sacrifice. 
And so it is, it is in a real sense a celebration of my union with Christ. And as I celebrate that union, I do it by, as it were, entering into fellowship with him. So B.B. Warfield says, in partaking of the Lord's Supper, we claim a share in the sacrifice which Christ wrought on Calvary for the sins of men. So just as we're in union with Christ in his death and burial and resurrection, so we eat the symbols of his death, the body and the blood, ingesting them, as it were, by faith, declaring he is mine, I am his, and the Spirit plays a unique role in that. Sinclair Ferguson says, it's not by the church's administration or merely by the activity of our memories, but through the Spirit that we enjoy communion with Christ, crucified, risen, and exalted. And so here is this wonderful, wonderful mystery and one that we generally ignore, and that is that there's a feeding on Christ which is being spiritually nourished in the symbolism of the supper, and we do it by faith. But there's also communion with one another. It's not just a vertical communion where I'm communing with Christ by the Spirit through the symbols of his body and his blood. But Warfield, he goes on and he says, it's accordingly no accident that we have so largely come to call the Lord's Supper the communion. It's the symbol of the oneness of Christians. There is but one salvation, but one Christian life. There is but one Savior and one source of life. And all those who share in it must needs stand side by side to imbibe it from the one fountain. So I've mentioned this before, but there's, there's this wonderful sense of, of, of the communion of saints, the communion of the body with one another. So one body unity that we are sharing a bond in Christ in his blood. So when, when you and I are partaking of the same cup and you and I are, you know, we, we, we pass that bread to each other, we pass that cup to each other, what we're doing is we're saying this Savior is mine and he's yours too. And if he's your Savior, then we're brothers and sisters. There is this, there is this, this, this marvelous sense of, of communion with the body of Christ itself, which, by the way, when we are partaking together, why do I say, wait till everybody's been served and then we'll eat together, then we'll drink together? It is because it is an act of unity of the body. And so just as sure as it is uh, the, the height of hypocrisy to be harboring sin in my heart and to eat the bread and drink the cup, and thus sin against the body and blood of the Lord, then it is also the height of hypocrisy to have division and faction uh, and contention with brothers and sisters and to partake of the bread and the cup. That's why part of self-examination may be the necessity of reconciliation with a brother or a sister. bread and the cup represent the ties that bind. Number four, table as a means of grace. Again, for the hundredth time, there's nothing in the elements, but it is the eating and the drinking in faith that the Spirit uses. So how, do, how is the table a means of grace? Well, first of all, proper observance of the supper strengthens faith. 
what do I need to have my faith strengthened? Well, I need the gospel, right? There's nothing that strengthens my faith more than the gospel. And I get the gospel through the preaching, okay, for sure. But I also get the gospel in tangible signs that remind me that Christ died for my sins according to the scriptures. That without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. My faith is strengthened with this little bread, little piece of bread and this little bit of juice, and it is a reminder to me of the very things upon which my faith stands. Next, proper observance of, of the supper conveys assurance. The bread and the cup are, 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 in a sense, the very symbols of Christ's guarantee of grace. The Puritans used all kinds of wonderful language about the Lord's Supper. And um, so this is uh, my wedding ring, right? And when I look at this wedding ring, what should I think about? This is actually my grandfather's wedding ring. So I do think about my grandfather. But what should I primarily think about? What's that? Yeah, I should think about Ariel. Um, does, does this make me think about the, the glories of marriage as an institution? Okay. Well, it might. Okay. But more pointedly, it makes me think about the one that I'm one flesh with. Okay. So the, the bread and the cup, some of the Puritans say, is like the wedding ring of Christ to his bride. Okay. It's a reminder. Okay. So when I do a wedding, I say, I say this, um, what symbols have you brought of your signs of faithfulness to each other? Right? I say at every wedding. And then they're supposed to say, we bought wings. Okay? And the ring... If you haven't seen Princess Bride, you're missing it. The ring is their symbol of their faithfulness to each other, right? The supper is Christ's symbolic reminder, his matchless faithfulness to us. Okay. Well, <clears throat> conveying assurance, Christ for me. Proper observance of the supper helps us to grow through self-examination, preparation, remembering, eating by faith. Um, the Puritans would actually say st- stuff like this, that the supper is also the time for you to covenant with God. Okay? The supper is a time for you to renew your vows to God, right? In, in a sense, there's a, what they're saying is, is that the supper is, is, is a great time for, for you to Commit yourself to the Lord once again. Right? It's part of the growth process. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm going to zip through these and then we'll see if there's any questions, comments, protests, etc. So why do people avoid the table? 
Well, first, and we won't go into much detail here because we talked about this a few weeks ago. Uh, A lot of people just don't see the importance. I was just going to say the importance of the ordinances, but I want to say a lot of people just don't see the importance of the church and her ordinances. So when, when the church is minimized or marginalized, her ordinances will be too. So if you minimize or or marginalize the church, how important is preaching going to be to you? If you minimize or marginalize the church, how important is fellowship going to be to you? What were the disciples steadfastly committed to in Acts 2.42? To the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So Acts 2.42 can never be true in a context in which the church just remains relatively unimportant. But when the church is, is seen as important and central to the life of the believer, it follows that her ordinances are vital as well. Second, a lot of people actually don't understand that it's a matter of obedience. Okay? And so... This, again, shouldn't surprise us in, in, in one sense because you have professing Christians who are simply unwilling to order their lives according to Christ's command. Right? So why would we think that, that, that they'd be interested in observing his command regarding the table? Okay. We, really, we, re- we live in incredibly sad times where, where we have so many professing Christians that that just do what they want to do, regardless of what the will of God is, regardless of what the word of God is. And there's all kinds of excuses for people to do this. Okay? I heard about a young man that was, that was contemplating um, moving in with his girlfriend, and, and his rationale was, well, the Bible doesn't clearly address that. Well, I'm sorry, I must not know what clearly address means because I'm pretty sure that it does, right? But you, you, you have all these excuses, right? So I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to do whatever I want with my body. I'm going to do whatever I want with my life. And if that's the way a professing Christian thinks that they can live their Christian life, why in the world would they ever take seriously the command, do this in remembrance of me? And yet Jesus does say, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Number three, they don't recognize it as a means of grace. They, just, they don't simply understand what, what it is for. And of course, who, who can blame the average evangelical for not understanding the significance of the Lord's table? Right? In, in the way that we, that we have typically observed it or the way in which we make so light of it, There's almost a sense in which the, 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 the sheep, God's people, that don't understand it and therefore they don't observe it as they should, in, in some sense that's the fault of pastors and teachers who have neglected to teach the whole counsel of God. Finally, some people avoid the Lord's Supper because they don't want to deal with their sin. <laughs> so... By the way, how many of you think that's true? 
<laughs> okay, so I, let, me, let me just tell you, it's true, okay? Let me, let me just tell you this, it's very true, okay? So communion is, is a time where we deal with our sins, time of self-examination, confession, repentance, right, as we've seen. It's also a time where we're encouraged to reconcile with one another, Matthew 5, 21 to 23. And so when we don't want to deal with our sin or to be reconciled with somebody, of course, we're in a very dangerous place. But over the years, I've had people actually confess to me that they have avoided communion for this very reason. And I just want to say this, to avoid the Lord's Supper because you don't want to deal with sin is insanity. It's absolute insanity. In God's universe, there is nothing worse than sin. Sin is worse than suffering. Sin is worse than cancer. Cancer won't send you to hell. Sin will. Parkinson's won't send you to hell. Sin will. And the, and the, the very supper that, that declares boldly the forgiveness of sin, why in the world? It is, it is as if the... the the, the remedy is offered, and you're like, no, thank you. I would prefer to die. The conviction of sin and the grace to deal with our sin is one of the most precious graces we can receive. And avoiding the very grace that our souls need most is spiritual insanity. There are other people, of course, that show up and observe the supper in the worst state of hypocrisy. I mean, I don't even know how many times I've thought with absolute fear and trembling of one of our former deacons who would pray at communion. And help distribute the bread and the cup. And pray with tears. And yet was an embezzling, adulterous drunkard. That kind of hypocrisy should scare us to death. And so the supper is a wonderful gift from our Savior. It is, as another Puritan said, the kiss of Christ to his bride. And so, brothers and sisters, this coming Lord's Day, we're going to get to eat the bread and drink the cup. And in some ways, I feel like I should preach this whole sermon again right before we eat the bread and drink the cup.
right? Right? So let's take it seriously. Let's receive the benefits that are ours in the bread and the cup. Amen? Amen. All right. Any questions before we have one minute? Liz. Yeah. So let me just say, let me, I'll just, you know, not that any of you are going to be getting married anytime soon. Some of you might, but I never do a communion at a wedding. And the reason is, is because it's a corporate ordinance. It's for the church. So having two people all dressed up, taking the Lord's Supper, is out of place. Okay? I would say that, and, and so in the past, Bob, when we've had people that have been, let's say, shut in, what we've done is, and we've done this a handful of times. It's not like we do it every month or something handful of times, we would take a, uh, a small group of us and somebody would actually give a devotional, you know, I mean, brief, I'm not going to you know, preach 55 minutes, um, and then pray, maybe even sing a song, but there's, in a sense, a representation of the church with them, okay, and then the word is still there, and so that's, that's how we've, we've done that, because it is, it's a, it's an, uh, a, a concern for people that haven't been able to observe that commandment. So, all right. Okay, any, any, Matt, because what we say from time to time, we don't see it every time, but we say that, um, that your children should be baptized before they partake of the supper. And I think that I would explain the order to them, um, that it's, that baptism should come first. Logically, baptism should come first. Um, when when we deal with with young people, we actually have, in in a sense, sort of the prerogative at that point to ensure that baptism comes first. So, and I would just explain to them the 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 the, the order of things. Okay. So. All right. Well, let's pray. If you have any other questions. Jason would be happy to answer, although don't ask him about frequency. Okay. (laughs) Our Father, we give you thanks for the bread and the cup. We thank you that for 2,000 years, your people have gathered around a table and have eaten bread and drank a cup and have done it in remembrance of your son, Jesus. We thank you that, that we do that. We thank you that you have given us that as a gift. And we pray that we as your people would honor you in the way that we observe the table. And Father, we pray that you would always, uh, always keep us from superstition. We pray that you would always keep us from from elevating the supper to a place where it doesn't belong. But, Father, we also equally pray that you would keep us from ever neglecting it or ignoring it. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to be a faithful church that eats the bread and drinks the cup and proclaims the Lord's death 
until he comes again. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.